Hey, how are we doing? <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. All right. How many of you had a good Halloween? You enjoyed it? You dressed up? Awesome. How many of you, I just learned this this week, that Christians actually, a friend of mine who will go unnamed, said that their family hid in their basement. How many hid in your basement on Halloween? It's all right. No hate. No hate. It's all right. The devil's real. I understand. Um, it's real. It's real. There were some scary costumes this year. I took my daughter trick-or-treating. It was tons of fun. Um, but yeah, hopefully you guys uh, stayed safe, had a good uh, time with that. Welcome to Young Adults. If you're new, we're so glad that you're here. We're in a new series called Leader of the Pack. Leader of the Pack. Uh, the reason that we did this series was we realized as a staff how much our culture, our society, uh, the United States of America right now is obsessed with this thing called leadership. If you were to walk into Barnes & Noble right now, just this year there will be hundreds of books written on this subject. What to do, what not to do to be a great leader. And those suckers will fly off the shelves because everybody deep down wants to be a leader. And the Ivy League colleges and universities within our nation, every single one of them has um, either a leadership institution or a leadership center because it's no longer enough to have an MBA. It's no longer enough to have a PhD. Now we want you to be a leader as well because that's what society is craving and that's what society needs. In the last 50 years... There have been tons of leadership organizations that have sprung up all over the nation and their sole purpose is to research what good leadership looks like, how it gets started, how it's maintained, how it's sustained. And, um, but here's the funny thing, is that while we are a culture that would love to be leaders of the pack, recently in USA Today, there was an article that was published that said that America is in a leadership crisis and Barna came up, uh, out with a study just recently, just this year. And they said that 90% of Americans, meaning 9 out of 10 people, think that right now in our nation we have a leadership crisis, meaning everybody wants to be a leader and society thinks they know how to tell us how to be a leader. And yet, we are in the middle of a leadership crisis. What's funny about this is Jesus in Scripture describes to us what he is like. And he tells us how he does life. And God makes it very clear that if we are going to live and we are going to make an impact in this world, the only way we do that is by being like him. See, society tells you that leadership is all about you having power. Society tells you that leadership is you being the loudest, and I know I'm loud, but um, you're the one with the megaphone. You're the one with the platform, that's leadership. That's what leadership looks like. You're the one that has tons of people reporting to you. That's what leadership looks like. You're the one that you know people come to and you've got the minions and you send them out. That's leadership in America. That's what society says leadership is. And 2,000 years ago, it was the same. 2,000 years ago, society was exactly the same and leadership in society was exactly the same. <laughs> And there's a story in scripture, and uh, how many of you have meddling mothers? A couple of you. I remember my mom like going to my fourth grade teacher and being like, um, why did she get a B? And I'm like, mom, meddling, like just let me get a B. Like moms are, they love us so much, right? 
So this mom of James and John comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I know someday you're going to be the leader of the pack. You're going to be the king of kings. And so if you would, Jesus, can you have my sons sitting on your right and on your left? Because those were positions of authority. Those were positions of leadership. To be on the right and the left of the throne meant that you were maybe not number one in charge, but you were pretty darn close. So she said, can they sit on your right and on your left? And in this moment, Jesus knows what she's asking for because what she is essentially asking for in her heart is what society deems as leadership. Having authority over people. Exercising authority over others. And it's like he's reading her mind in this moment. And we uh, read this scripture in Matthew 20, and it says this. You know that the rulers and the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. So he says to the mom, and he says to James and John, you know how it is in society where men exercise authority over people, and the great men of the day or the leaders of the day, they essentially lord over people. You know how that is? And they're like, yeah, yeah, because that's kind of what we're asking for, Jesus. He says, okay, well, let me tell you something. He says, not so with you. The way he puts it is, it is not this way among you, James. It is not this way among you, John. And young adults, let me say tonight, it is not this way among us. Jesus says, if we are going to be leaders, we are going to be a different type of leader. We're not going to look like the way society looks. We're not going to. We are going to be the type of leadership that quenches the thirst of America right now. We are going to be the type of leaders that bring a different type of vibe and a different type of essence to the workplace and to our nation and to the places of office that we keep. We are going to be different types of leaders. And here's what I know about you. I have dreamed and I have prayed that I would get to pastor the next generation of leaders and that's what I believe um, we have in here. I'm praying with all my heart that I get to experience the day when I'm 70 years old and I witness someone that I have pastored be a president, be an attorney general, and have integrity, be full of Christ. It would be a dream come true for me. Jesus says, not so with you, James, not so with you. And then he says this, he goes, If you're going to lead in my kingdom, Matthew 20, verse 26, whoever wishes to be great in my kingdom, great among you shall be a servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. See, the world says that leadership is power. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Leadership is leveraging your power for the powerless. The world says that leadership is having a big voice. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Uh, Leadership is actually using your voice for people that don't have a voice. The world says that it's having lots of people report to you and having lots of people under you and having lots of people serve you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's having lots of people that you serve. That's leadership in my kingdom. You want to change the world. You lead like Jesus did. Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. The Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, your God, my God, did not come to have people serve him. 
but to serve and give his life away. And I read this this week and I thought, Lord, I'm not this type of leader. And maybe you're feeling this way. And so the message I think I'm going to bring to you tonight and the message that I believe God has for us as a young adult community tonight is simply this. If we are going to be the leaders that God wants us to be, there is only one way that we can do this because the, the charge is too high and the call is too great. This type of leadership is too costly. And so the only way that we can do it is if God is with us. And so I titled tonight, if you're taking notes, The Lord is with you, leader. The Lord is with you. Um, If you want to get a little Puritan in here with me, I will say, The Lord is with you. And then you say, And also with you. Awesome. Good job. (laughs) Awesome. All right, let's pray. Ask God to be here. God, we thank you. God, I'm so grateful for salvation. God, I just pray that tonight that um, this would be glorifying to you, Um, that this service would be glorifying to you, God. Forgive us for the ways we fall short, and I pray that tonight, um, that God, that you would just begin to speak life into the leaders in here. I believe so much in every single individual in here, the big, the small. I just pray, God, that you would speak to them on an individual level, enter our hearts tonight. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen. All right, so uh, there's this uh, thing out right now called the Awkward Years Project. Anybody heard of it? It's about your awkward years. It's where this uh, artist decided that she was going to take people who were now, you know, kind of good looking and say, hey, can you just take a picture of yourself with your most awkward picture? And dude, this is great. Like, because people have middle school pictures and grade school pictures and high school pictures that are terrible. And... And how many of you, you would say your awkward years were in grade school? Yeah. yeah. How many of you, it was uh, middle school? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of you, you're awkward? I know, I know, it's real. It's real. How many of you, it was high school? How many of you, like, I actually want you to stand up. How many of you, like, I'm living it? Just stand up. Just stand up. I got you. Look around. Find your, find your boyfriend. Find your awkward boyfriend. <laughs> All right. So my awkward years, my awkward years was in, uh, I was in middle school, okay? I had braces. I didn't know how to do my hair. And uh, I, I just, like, I would just let it air dry. And so I kind of looked like Kurt Cobain. Like, it just, like, stuck... <laughs> I look like a little boy. And so I wore a Nike t-shirt every day of the week. I'd, I just was just awkward, dude. And it hung with me. Baby, aren't you so glad you met me later on when I decided I knew how to wear mascara? <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> but it kind of carried into my high school years, right? And my freshman year of high school, um, I decided to run track. And I run track with some of the coolest most swagger-filled people in high school. And because here's the deal, and some of you probably know this, if you were a football player in the off-season so you didn't get tubby, you had to run track. Same thing for the cheerleaders. Cheerleaders in the off-season so you didn't get tubby, you had to run track. And so I was in track with like these huge football players that were super cool and these beautiful cheerleaders. Wait, what did I say? 
huge football players. Yeah, okay, I said it right. Okay, I said it right. I said it the way I wanted to. Okay, and then and I would run track. My, you know, we have time trials, and I remember showing up to my very first time trial, and I've got on, like, these hand-me-down, because I don't know how it was when y'all went to high school, but, like, I had, like, everything was hand-me-down. We were poor school. I don't know. And so, like, I had these hand-me-down, like, sweats and this jacket that didn't fit me, and, like, it smelled weird. And, and, uh, and you know, I've got this, like, French braid that my mom did in braces, and I'm just like, okay. You know, like, hey, it's me. I'm here. And so... And so we have our first time trial, and I'm just running with, like, some good-looking, swagger-filled ladies, right? And if you were to tell me, Jesse, you know what? I think that, man, you look like a leader. Like, you just look like, Jess, you just look like somebody that could lead a track team. I, I would have just felt so silly, and yet, that's exactly what happened. I had a coach come to me, and she sat me down, and it was after a second time trial that we had had, a second uh, time trial race. And she said, Jess, she said, uh, look, we've been looking at our teams, and we want to put together our relay team. She said, look, I think that you have what it takes to be the anchor leg. And for those of you who don't know what an anchor leg is, it's basically, um, it is what is arguably the most important leg of the race, and then also what they hope is the most competent racer, probably the most experienced. And I remember looking at her with like my braces and my braid falling out and being like, are you sure? I don't think you have the wrong person. And she said, no, it's you. It's you. I think it's going to be you. And there was this moment that I had with my coach that day where I realized that she saw something in me that I did not see in myself. And in the same way, God is looking at a generation and at a room full of young adults and he sees things in you and he sees a leadership in you. And I promise this, even if you already sense leadership in yourself, he sees something in you that you don't quite see just yet. He sees something great. This is how our Lord is. He pulls out the best in us. He pulls out his spirit in us. And in the book of Judges, there's a story about a man who is probably one of the most awkward people we meet in scripture. And um, to give you a little backstory, for those of you who have Bibles, you can flip to Judges 6 to give you a little backstory while you get there. In the book of Judges, the Israelites, um, it's about 2050 BC, and they have been a free people for most of the time. They're in a series of years where they are ruled by what, what's called judges, okay? And so um, during this time, there was a set of people called the Midianites, and they were herdsmen. And they would go and they would take over a group of people and then they would kind of set up camp and they would eat all of their crops. They would take all their food. They would basically just scavenge on a society. Well, the Israelites had beaten them a couple of times and so um, in, in battle. And so there was the, kind of this thing going on, kind of like, I don't know, between the Red Wings and the Avalanche. Boo, Detroit. Hate you. Um... Forever, forever I will. <laughs> and, uh, but the Midianites, the Israelites had been disregarding the Lord. 
They'd been false towards the Lord. They'd been disobedient towards the Lord. And so scripture tells us that the Israelites, God allowed them to be handed over to the hands of Midian. And so Midian overtook the Israelites and they began, and said they were like locusts in the land. They just settled where the Israelites were and they ate all of their crops and they took all of their goods and they took all of their livestock. This went on for seven years and Israel finally began to pray, God, send us somebody to deliver us. Seven years. And that's where we meet a man named Gideon. It says this. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the uh, terebinth at Orpah, (laughs) which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The scripture goes on and it says this. Now, And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if uh, the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and has given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you, God, who speaks to me. Please don't depart from here until I come and I bring you my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So we meet this man, Gideon, and he is so blatantly obvious, the opposite of everything we should expect from a leader. I I joked about this last time I preached about Gideon, but um, most translations say that when he asked the angel of the Lord, he would say, pardon me, Lord, and I just like, I got this like voice in my head. Like, I, he, I, who says that, first of all? Like, oh, pardon me, Lord. Excuse me. I have some questions for you, you know? And so he comes and, and this is like nonstop. It's like incessant. And he continues to question God and he says, oh, um, but pardon me. Are you sure it's me? Oh, but pardon me. Uh, can I bring you a present and make sure that you're God? And then he says, you know, um, God, can I lay out a fleece and, and you make the ground wet and the fleece dry and then that's not enough. So let me lay out the fleece and make the fleece wet and the ground dry. Like he just doesn't stop questioning the Lord. And I remember reading about Gideon and he annoyed me because I so felt like he was such a wussy. This is how I felt when I first read about him. But then the years went on and I realized that I was a lot more like Gideon than I was willing to admit. That while outwardly I might not question the Lord this way, inwardly I'll have fears and anxieties and worries and I think the same things and have the same doubts about myself that Gideon and what we don't realize when we read Gideon's story, a lot of times Christian, you know, sermons and Christian circles will say, oh, Gideon was, you know, he was just being, you know, completely unbrave and he was hiding in the wine press. But what you need to understand is that that was normative. Everyone in Israel was hiding. They were hiding in the mountain clefts or they were hiding in the wine press. And when we meet him, this is a necessary task for him. 
He has to beat out his wheat in the wine press because he doesn't want his food to be taken. He has to provide for his family. What we need to understand is that as a society, as a whole, this is normative. This is what society looks like. Gideon is the average sum of his world right then. And if we were to look at this room right here, what would we say about ourselves? I think we would say, in general, I will say about myself that I am the average sum of what my society looks like. Society right now is addicted to social media. We don't know how to interact with one another because we're so caught up on our devices. Society is riddled with injustices, but we don't know as a society how to tackle them. So we just critique the way that leaders are handling them instead of leading ourselves. That's normative. That's normal. This is what was normal for Gideon in his age. But normal wasn't working for Israel. And I would dare to say, young adults, that normal is not working in 2015. It's not working right now. And so the story of Gideon, above all other types of stories, is the story of God looking at the normal sea of society and looking at a very average person and saying, I will pluck you out if you are willing. And please, we need to move our people forward into a new way. It is God saying, I will devote myself to you, Gideon, to save my people and to bring myself glory. And I think that's exactly what God wants to do through this series. I think he wants to reach into our hearts and pluck us out of what is normal and say, I have something new for you, son. I have something new for you, daughter. I have a leadership that I am hoping you will take on. And if we are going to do this, there are some things that I want us to gather from Scripture tonight. And you can go home and read this story yourself in Judges, and I believe that God is going to speak to you very individually through this text. But these are things that I think God has showed me this week as I've been studying. The first thing is this, is that God wants you to abandon your wine press. God wants you to abandon your wine press. Judges 6, 2 says this, And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made themselves dens that are in mountains and caves and in strongholds. So we read about Gideon, and we meet him, and he is in a wine press. And we read about the people of Israel, and they are also hiding in the clefts of mountains and in um, what they call a stronghold. Now, stronghold, if you were to Google it, if you were to just look it up in Webster's, it is essentially, sorry, go ahead and take that down. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. That was my fault, Whitney. A stronghold, if you were to Google it, if you were to um, get a definition off of Webster's, a stronghold is defined as a fortress that you run into for safety. When you're being attacked, when you're being threatened, a stronghold is something you run into for safe keeping. In the Old Testament, the very first time a stronghold is used, though, it isn't like Webster's, a stronghold is used in Psalms 18 to describe God. And it says, when you're in trouble, he is your rock. When you're in trouble, he is your safe haven. When you are in trouble, he is your strong tower, your stronghold. It's where you run to for safety. But in the New Testament... Stronghold takes on a whole different meaning. Whitney, go ahead and throw that up there. 
A stronghold is a place, habit, or system that temporarily provides safety or security, but eventually imprisons the habitant. Uh, if you've been around Christian circles for a long time, you've probably heard people pray, and they'd be like, Lord, we pray against the strongholds in this person's life, you know. <laughs> if that's not how you pray, you're right. <laughs> uh, but what essentially this person is doing is they are praying against a spiritual fortress in someone's life. And here's the thing about a spiritual fortress in your life is it's something you run into initially for safety and for comfort and for security. But eventually, it's something that imprisons you. 2 Corinthians says this. It says, 2 Corinthians 10, For the weapons of warfare are not flesh and blood, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and take every pretension that is raised against the knowledge of God. All right, let me pause and just do a quick Bible study with you here. The picture that Scripture is painting here is the picture of the true stronghold, Jesus Christ. This is your true stronghold. That's what 2 Corinthians is saying. This is where you run in times of need. This is where you run when you're afraid. And then it says anything that poses as a stronghold, as something that's going to offer you safety and security, you destroy that sucker. You take it down and make it obedient to the true stronghold. That's the picture in 2 Corinthians. And here's the deal for you, and here's the deal for me in 2015. Every single person in here has things that we run to in times of need to have security. Maybe for you, it's the way that you control money or your paycheck, and you need it. It's a place of comfort, and you see the dollars going into your savings, and it's the way that you control your environment. But eventually, it becomes no longer this 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 place of security, but it becomes something that controls you and it doesn't allow you to step out of your stronghold and trust God in a new way. It doesn't allow you to step out of your stronghold and trust him with your finances. Maybe for you, it's a defense mechanism. As a kid, you were afraid of being rejected and so you rejected people before they rejected you. You pushed people out of your life before they pushed you out and it served you. It it helped you when you were a child. But now, you're an adult, and it is a strong hold in your life. Maybe for you, it's a mediocre relationship. You were lonely. He was lonely. They don't love Jesus, though. And you ran to them. But right now, it's just something that's holding you back. Maybe for you, it's just comfort It's a ministry that's good enough. It's a job that's good enough. I don't know what it is for you, but I would venture to guess that most of us in here have something that we ran to for safety and security, and God's saying it's time to step out. Step out of your wine press. Because here's the deal. None of these strongholds are inherently bad. They are bad when we sit in them for a long time. In the beginning, running into the clefts of the rocks, it saved the Israelites. But picture it after a year, after two years, after seven years. And you have children by that point. And those little kids, all they know is life in a rock. 
It's a strong hold. And it is likely that tonight God is saying, I want to have you lead, young adult. I believe that you are a leader. You are going to lead my people. But here's the deal. You got to get enough courage and you have to trust in me, your true, true stronghold, and you need to step out of your wine press. Number two, I think he's calling leaders to set aside your inadequacies. Set aside your inadequacies. The Lord turned to him and said to him, this is Judges 6, 14. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord of hosts is speaking to Gideon, and he says, go in this might of yours. And Gideon is just being honest at this point. I used to think he was being weak, but he's just being honest. <laughs> he's saying, okay, okay, but let me be honest with you, God. I am the weakest of, of the weakest clan, and I'm the weakest in my family. And what he is stating is a fact about himself, but over time, your inadequacy, something that you feel about yourself, an inadequacy that you feel in your life, when it becomes the focus of your life, it becomes a deep insecurity. And so what are you insecure about tonight? Maybe for you, it's that you grew up poor. Maybe for you, it's that you're uneducated. Or that you're a minority. Or that you're a girl. Maybe for you, it's that you're not well-spoken. You're not organized. Um, you're afraid of rejection. You're afraid of failure. And hear me on this, most of us in here, no, all of us in here have inadequacies. That's normal. But what becomes a problem is when that inadequacy becomes something that we so focus on, it becomes a deep-rooted insecurity. And a deep-rooted insecurity will be a paralyzer for your leadership, young adult. It will hold you back. The worst leaders in the world are people who are insecure in themselves because they control the people around them, they try to control the outcomes, the manipulators, they're tough to work with. Insecure people are terrible leaders. And so the way that we combat this insecurity, the way that we combat our inadequacies in God's kingdom is we look less on our inadequacies and less on our insecurities and we look more towards his promises and his identity for us. He says this to uh, Gideon, and I find it so interesting. He says, go in this might of yours, Gideon. And I think that's so interesting because he knows what Gideon is. He knows he's in the weakest clan. He knows that he's the weakest in his family. I picture, you know, like snots from like little giants, like going like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but he's like really little. And I picture Gideon like just tiny. And he's like, go in this might of yours, Gideon. And he's like, but what he is saying in this moment, and I love this, is God is saying, I'm mighty, and I'm giving you my might. Here's what you need to understand, Christian. The moment you receive Jesus as your Savior, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your life, in that moment, spiritually, when the Holy Spirit entered you, you received everything that is owed to Christ. Every power and every authority that belongs to Christ now belongs to you. Not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, but because that's how good his cross is for you. Go in this might 
of yours, not because you have it, but because I'm giving it to you. Gideon is faced with the challenge at this point of either focusing on his inadequacies or focusing on his promises from God. And I love it because in Hebrews, it talks about, let us run the race that is set before us, throwing off every hindrance and every weight that so easily entangles us. That's what it says. And I, and I love it because, um, you know, we know to get rid of sins, but inadequacies and insecurities will hold us back. He says, get rid of every weight. And then it says this, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. I, a few weeks ago, I got interviewed by an intern because they're in this process where they're interning ministry leads. And I remember her asking me, she's like, Jess, you know, you don't seem like you have any insecurities. You don't seem like you ever struggle in any way. And I looked at her and I was like, no, are you kidding? I have lots of insecurities. The difference is I don't focus on them very much. I focus on who he says I am. I focus on who he says I will become. I focus on his promises. And I give no credence to anything else. Isaiah 40, we read it in prayer today. And it says, those who wait upon the Lord. And there's one translation. It says, they will exchange their strength. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. And what God is asking you tonight is will you lay down your inadequacies and your strength? Because he would love to give you his. Go in your might now, young adult, that I have given you. It's beautiful. He says, step out of your wine press. Tear off that inadequacy. Tear off that insecurity. Lay it at his feet. Take up his promise. And then lastly... I think the Lord is saying this to us tonight and might be the most important part. The Lord is with you, leader. The Lord is with you. God says you have to step out. You need to let go of your insecurities. And then he says this, now go in the power that I have given you. And I love this because it is a proclamation. The very first thing he says to Gideon, and hear me on this. The very first thing he says to Gideon is not, Gideon, you, I have been searching for the perfect leader. And I looked far and wide, and it's you, bro. I mean, you are brave. You are strong. I mean, the, the ladies love you. It, I have found you. He doesn't say that to him. He doesn't say, you know, Gideon, I'm so glad that I found you because you have all the attributes that I've been looking for in a leader. He says this. This is the very first proclamation he says over Gideon. He says, the Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. This is a proclamation that is worth us taking note. The Lord is with you. It's said all throughout scripture, Joshua, before he takes the promised land, what is spoken over his leadership is not Joshua, you're bad to the bone. Joshua, you're so great. Good thing that you're in charge. Now go take the promised land. He says, Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed because I am with you. Now go and take the promised land. He says it to jo uh, Joseph. Joseph was great um, in every atmosphere that God put him in. In Potiphar's house, in the prison cell, he became and rose to a leadership position in every place that he ever was. And it said at the beginning of every single chapter, and the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with him. In Zephaniah, 
I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy, it says, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave nor forsake you. Do not be afraid, don't be discouraged. And finally, in Zephaniah, it says that the Lord will be with you. He is a mighty warrior, mighty to save. It's so good. There is a power in God being present with you and with me. Um, for Halloween this year, we, uh, our staff has a staff party every year, and we get together, and we get all dressed up. And if you don't know the Red Rock staff, they're very competitive. And so... Everybody comes with, like, their outfits. I mean, we really put it all together. And so myself and John and then Doug and his wife, Sam, we dressed up like Duck Dynasty. And uh, there's a picture, I think, that we have of it. There's us. I was, I was Uncle Cy. Um, <laughs> dude, what? Oh, my gosh. Aren't you glad you married that, babe? Um, but we dressed up, and I, I, we had so much fun that night. And I remembered kind of joking with my husband. This reminds me of my childhood because I grew up in, like, this kind of white, trashy part of town, and I loved it. But I just grew up. Okay, and here's the reality. Across the street, there was, like, this duplex, and it had, like, 15 people living in it. It was aunts and uncles and moms and dads and you know, half of them were unemployed, and then on the other side of the street was like, they, they, you know, it wasn't a whole lot of land. Nobody had a lot of land. It's not like it was farm country, okay? Um, but everyone had chickens and goats and horses, and I'll never forget as a kid, uh, one of my neighbors pulled up a, a school bus and parked it and put it up on cinder blocks and then put hay in it and for the horses, and because what else would you do <laughs> with a school bus? And this is the neighborhood I grew up in. Up the street, there was these four boys named the Imers. And uh, I loved playing with them. They were, some of them were my age, uh, some of them a little bit older. Um, but like I said, you know, it was all like crazy fun. You know, they had like abandoned furniture in their front yard that we would play in and um, BB guns. And one day I'm up playing with those boys and I get shot in the back with a BB gun. I'm about six years old. And I run home, and I'm just bawling my eyes out, bawling my eyes out. And I come to my dad, and he meets me at the door. He can hear me screaming from down the street. And he picks me up in his arms, and he comforts me. And uh, I'll never forget this as long as I live. He set me down, and uh, after I'd kind of like, <sighs> you know, like gotten the shutters out, <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said, okay, now, Jesse, he said, go show them that you can play with them. And he tapped my little bum, and I straightened right up because he's my daddy, and so I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And I sprinted down the road, and I played with the Imers the rest of the afternoon. And I had a fearlessness that comes from knowing that your daddy believes in you. But not only that, about halfway through the day, I realized uh, my dad had driven his like big old Ford truck up and he was leaning against it. <laughs> and he was watching us play in the front yard and I realized in that moment that I could do whatever I wanted um, and that these boys had to play with me. <laughs> and if they didn't treat me nice, he would end their life. And so... <laughs> I had an audaciousness and a fearlessness and a like confidence that came from the presence of my father. 
There is power in the presence of our God. Hebrews 5, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 13 says this. He has said, I will never leave you, young adult. Let this sink into your heart. I'll never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. He's my rock. He's my stronghold. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God was so committed to Gideon before Gideon was even committed to leading God's people. He was so devoted to him. And listen to me, he is so devoted to you. Right here, right now, he wants to meet you in the middle of your seat and raise you up and call you up as a leader. In Matthew 28, this is before Jesus leaves the planet. He says, go in this might of yours and make disciples and lead people and baptize them and tell them about my salvation. Tell them about the Holy Spirit. Tell them about my glory. And then he says this in Matthew 28, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is with you. No matter what you do, no matter what you go, where you go. If everybody would stand in here tonight. Um, With every head bowed, I would love it if you are in here and you feel like um, that God is maybe calling you to a type of leadership. But you're, and I get it, you feel inadequacies, you feel insecurities. You feel like you're not good enough, like maybe you don't have what it takes. Um, Or maybe you're thinking, surely it's not me. Surely God's not calling me to be a leader. I would love for you to just in faith, just raise your hand um, in acceptance tonight. Like raise it outwardly. Put your hands up to receive from him. Just put your hands up to receive from him. Every single person in here, there's not a single person who God doesn't say, I can't use you, I won't use you. There's not a single person in here that God says, I'm not with you. There's not a single person in here that he won't use. Receive from him tonight, and I wanna pray over all of you. God, I pray, God, that you would just raise up a group of people, God, that love you, God, that serve you, that serve other people that are so mighty towards other people. I pray that there's a whole posse of leaders in here that will just receive from you, that will um, courageously run into you when you are their stronghold, that will be found in you, that will find their identity in you, that will lay aside their insecurities and step away from the things that they have found comfort in for way too long. God, I pray that you would raise up some leaders tonight and throughout this series. And now I wanna ask if um, you can put your hands down. If there's anybody in here, um, I've been talking all night about Jesus. And here's the deal. All week, I've just felt um, the weight of heaven and the weight of hell. And it's real. And Jesus says that if you confess that he is Lord before man, that he will confess that you are his before heaven. 
And so um, if you're in here and you don't know Jesus the Christ, I would love for you to meet him tonight. If you're in here and you're saying, man, I would love to know that God is with me, um, then would you just throw up your hand right now for the very first time and I would love to pray for you. Go ahead, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you. Here's the deal. Jesus says that if you confess with your mouth that he is God, that you will be saved. And he says that he will um, not be ashamed of you before all of heaven. And so you get Jesus in the here and now, and then you get Jesus in heaven forever. And so I'm going to pray for you. God, thank you so much for every single salvation tonight. And God, I just pray... um, that your just presence would be thick tonight. I pray that you would help me to know that you're with me, that you'd help every single person in here to know that you are with them. God, that you would go with us, that your, um, your presence would be felt, that your love would be felt. God, you, we love because you first love us, and we lead because you first led us. And so lead us tonight into worship. We love you so much. We're so thankful for you tonight. God, I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.